0: From Air Force Special Operations Command, the mission of a combat controller is to deploy undetected into combat and hostile environments to conduct special reconnaissance, establish assault zones or airfields while simultaneously conducting air traffic control, fire support, command control, and communications and forward air control. They deploy with air and ground forces in support of direct actions such as counterterrorism, foreign internal defense, humanitarian assistance and combat search and rescue welcome to glorious professionals i'm jason here with rich our guest on episode 17 is an old friend and former air force combat controller dan skidmore ds who served in afghanistan iraq syria niger and haiti In multiple theaters of operations ranging from combat deployments to humanitarian missions. Post-military, he's a fitness entrepreneur, GORUCK cadre, and GORUCK's director of training with experience in powerlifting, CrossFit, endurance events of all kinds, and just getting sweat on in some of the simplest and most effective ways possible. Coming to us from Marrakesh, Morocco, DS, welcome to the show. Thank you very much.
1: Got chills just reading about the old
0: work, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I do, I love it. I'm like, oh God, there's so much awesome in there. You know, and, and, and it just, it takes, it takes a lot. You gotta ask a lot of people to get ready to go do all that different kind of stuff. Let's, let's start with some of your early influences. What led you toward this path of service? All right. Well, I was raised in God's country in Athens,
1: Ohio. Uh, My father was a senior research engineer at Ohio University. So he's got a PhD in electrical engineering and basically worked on uh, GPS landing systems for the last 30 years. And uh, man, so I I had like an idea about aircraft. And uh, when it came time in high school, I really didn't have a direction that I was going to take didn't really know what I wanted to do, um, but I knew that I didn't want to waste a bunch of time sitting about and learning in college. And I knew that I'd waste a bunch of money on uh, booze and girls and, well, who knows if that's a waste. Uh, but, man, I, I kind of had an epiphany that I needed to do something. And my dad, he, uh, he, all of his buddies that he worked with were all in the Air Force. And so I talked to all these guys. And, uh, it just sounded like the air force had a better quality of life kind of lined up with what I wanted to do. And, um, uh, I played sports all through high school, you know, I played basketball, ran cross country, uh, played soccer. And, uh, so I was very physical, but man, I, I wasn't necessarily ready to go play college. And, uh, even though I could go to Ohio university for free, cause my dad worked there, uh, I decided, man, I was going to get, get a little bit more directive with this thing and, uh, enlisted in the air force.
0: So you wanted a comfortable life in the Air Force. That's all I really heard from that. From That's that it, man. Beginning I, I, there. Wanted
1: that, I wanted that Cush life. And the day that I was at MEPS, you know, uh, getting all the medical training, my mom like stormed out of the room and she said, oh, I just don't want my baby to be a grunt. And I and I looked and I was like, wait, I'm going in the Air Force, mom. It's going to be fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so what was the... your Your mom was supportive? Your dad was supportive. What was the, I mean, cause look, you passed up a free education to a, to a solid university in, in God's country. I mean, what's, what's going on there?
1: Yeah. So my dad was totally supportive. Um, he, we basically kept it a secret from my mom for a little while. And then, uh, and then when we finally broke the news to her, she was not excited just because, you know, Hey, I'm a baby. She didn't want me to get hurt. And she didn't quite understand the military. And, uh, well, maybe she did way better than, he did, but man, like she was not necessarily all about it, just from a safety standpoint. Uh, but then, once we got rolling, man, hey, this is the this is the objective.
0: So, what year is this, DS? Two thousand six. Two thousand six. So that's to go back. I mean, that's the year I earned my green beret. And there you go. It's like the theater was a rock right then, and it was it was bad. Yeah, you know. Yeah. To kind of portray that time, it was nightly news shows were showing faces of the fallen at the very end. I mean, I just got chills running down my arms, just thinking about that and how it was just a difficult time. So I can, I can appreciate your mother's worry, right? I mean, my family certainly felt a lot of that. And how did that make you feel? Well, I, I felt, you know, called to serve at one point in my
1: younger years, I thought, hey, you know, the military is for somebody else. It's not necessary. I'm, I'm above that. You know, I distinctly remember having this thought that said, man, wars will be fought um, in this generation by politicians and not necessarily boots on the ground. And and then something in my mind changed of like, oh, well, that's not the case. This is this is going down and, uh, and seeing, you know, our Afghanistan, it was all too real, right? Iraq kicking off hot and heavy.
0: Yeah, I didn't see too many, I didn't see too many politicians in the mountain of uh, Afghanistan in 2001.
1: Well, you know, hey, what does a 13-year-old kid know, right? You think you're above everything else. And then when life smacks you in the face of, hey, it, it's taken a lot of guys, right? And, and who signs up? Well, kids that are down to go
0: operate a little bit. To go back to your dad, what was that like that you had this sort of secret with your dad from your mom? <laughs> well it led to the
1: end of their marriage
2: <laughs> did it
1: <laughs> yeah and and they you know hey they weren't in a great spot they were staying together for the kids right uh, but i distinctly remember like that was one of the final straws that broke the camel's back in that but hey man like you know hey ends come to an end uh regimes change all the time but that was like it, they just had differing views of how their kids were gonna see, uh, serve and now since my little brother's a navy seal uh, my sister did take that. She she ran her way through college, uh, similar to Emily. My sister's name's Emily as well, and she paid her way through college, running running her little heart out. Um, but man, like you know, that that sense of service and uh, and just wanting to get out and get after it was ingrained to me and my brother. Because man, we played. We had twenty five acres in Athens, Ohio, the woods, and we played paintball. And but war was our. Was our f- hobby, right? I mean, I, I distinctly remember running around and uh, launching mortars and, and just fighting all the time in the woods. And uh, my and my dad kind of spurred that on with like paintball guns, right? And we would just go at each other and have amazing wars. And uh, and we needed that outlet because that's what dudes do, right? God bless you guys. That's awesome,
0: <laughs> right? I mean, my brother is 12 years younger, so it's it's a little different. I watch my boys rolling around beating each other's asses every morning. Like it's, you know, the national geographic channel and you've got those lion cubs just getting after it. And every once in a while, the, the King, right. He's like, Hey, cut it out. You know, that's kind of, that's kind of my role in, in the house anyway. And it's just, they're just getting one hell of an education in, if not combat arms yet, the, (laughs) some, some form of combat is, is going on here every single day. Sounds like that's what it was for, for you guys.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, that's the Spartan way, right? Boys, are, boys fight and girls play dress up and, and take that route unless they want to get into that. And, and, and so that's like people are going to seek that out. And uh, so good, man. BD alpha.
0: Lots of girls. Uh, Emily might reach through the screen, and slap you right now and, and talk about how she didn't play dress up at all. <laughs> Sound like your sister didn't either. <laughs> she did she wasn't my, no my sister was in the fight you know she just
1: threw on an extra layer of clothes so the uh the paintballs didn't sting quite as bad but she was mixing it up with us and she's she's hard as nails for sure she's dealt with more death being a nurse than I ever did.
0: No no I get it there there's sort of stereotypes out there and you you market enough Barbie dolls to enough people I think we're we're in the process of undoing a lot of that and Definitely. My M and your sister are certainly at the forefront of that. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about the actual type of service in the Air Force because all sort of jokes aside, I mean, I've worked with CCTs. I've worked with all, all various types of combat controllers that come out of the Air Force. I know, I know this guy standing to my left, Rich has as well. I mean, you're, you're a huge, huge benefit to the team. That's on you know the the most dangerous ground pounding missions that are there. I mean, it, it's not just your your upriding in the in the aircraft. I mean you're you're on the ground with your M4 and all your stuff, and you're you're on the special forces team that That was my experience. So how did you choose that within the the air Force?
1: So I walked into the recruiter's office with my dad, and we basically, you know, he gave us the spiel. I didn't understand how the pay structure worked. It didn't matter. Uh, but I said, "Hey, what's the most challenging thing you have?" And he busted out a thing of pararescue and combat control, and said, "Hey, do you want to fix problems or do you want to do you want to cause the mess?" And I said, "Dude, I let's let's drop some warheads on foreheads." And, um, so combat control seemed like the way to go with the air traffic control background that my father knew. Cause man, we, I grew up riding around in planes out of the DC through out of OU, Ohio university airport. And so that led to picking that style of mission. Right. And, um, and so I joined up, uh, straight out of basic training, you know, you get, you get an audition, right. You get an, a job interview to go be a combat controller, see if you can even make it. And it's just a kick in the teeth you know the first 2 weeks are like a, a ongoing go ruck tough endless eight count bodybuilders and you're just seeing seeing if you can you know drown and not quit and uh, and just all in preparation for hey you're going to go to dive school you're going to go to freefall school you're going to get shot out on a mountaintop somewhere and are you going to quit with the boys and uh, and so you know the selection process is similar to what you guys go through in special forces but you know as you dial down it, even more you know the second school that we go to is air travel control school same FAA certified course that everybody goes to, uh, whether they're in the Air Force or you know, going to sit in some tower. And so you really dial into that technical side of the job. And so not just like the tactical side, but you also have to know all the air traffic control lingo because that's what you're doing.
0: I'm going to sort of beat the chest for special operations community. I mean, the goal is warrior poet stuff. You have to be strong. It's always the gateway, right? I mean, Mentally strong and physically strong. They use the physical. It's very physical, mm-hmm. right? Definitely. And, you know, will you quit that? Because if you'll quit that or you didn't, or you lack the discipline to prepare yourself, you're, you're just not meant for our community. That's just right. sort of factual, right? I mean, hopes are not enough. But then there are various courses of all of that. I mean, Rich Morse code with me, it was, you know, all sorts of radios and computers. I mean, there's these hard skills that, when you get into skills, you can't really learn that during a smoke session, right?
1: But it, so with the Air Force, they would smoke you in the morning, and then the afternoon would be all mental stuff. So by the time you get there, you're already gassed out, and it's time to learn. So we would do, you know, a two hour pool session in the morning, run from the pool back to the schoolhouse, and then learn about, you know, the overhead pattern all day, or sit in a simulator and just talk to endless aircraft.
0: Yeah, I mean it's not supposed to be easy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean
1: it's still the Air Force, you know. What do you expect?
0: <laughs> no, I don't. I don't buy that. So extremely physical out of the gates, and then you're you're Definitely. getting into more of the skills-based mental side. But you've got to maintain proficiency. I mean, if 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 the physical goes away, then it's it's a perishable skill like everything else. Yeah, absolutely. Walk us through some more of your training pipeline or what was the biggest challenge that you faced as we kind of start to ramp up toward the real deal in your deployments?
1: Uh, So for me, it was just like putting all the technical skills together. You know, I always thought, Hey, I'm going to be in as great a shape as I can be, because that's the discipline that I can control right now. And then it'll make everything else physically that much easier to grasp if I'm not worried about, The standards or how tired I am. So, you know, getting through combat control school, learning about radios and demolition and setting up landing zones and uh, land nav, which man, I was not the star candidate at, but I, so I got a lot of practice, you know, you, Hey, you failed a test, you're going to get it the next day. And I learned that the hard way, basically every time. Um, So I got a, a lot of good practice reps. And that was, that was basically the first two years of my pipeline. You get to go to dive school, you get to go to free fall school, and uh, And then, you know, after two years of training, you get thrown on the team and uh, and then another solid year of training.
0: Take it up a notch real quick. Like, what is yeah. the what is the job? The job that you're doing as part of the team that you start on with the Air Force, but then flexing out?
1: Sure. So it totally depends on the the position that you're deployed at. So there's so many different jobs. My first deployment was on an assault zone reconnaissance team. Uh, basically, a unilateral Air Force team that we would go out and find a piece of you know barren land and say, hey, we want to put a runway here for some follow-on mission. Let's do the survey, see what it's like, see what we can land, and then we'll prepare it for future operations, right? For a task force that might be coming in to do a hit or uh, as like a, a, a leap pad to the next landing zone. And so that was kind of my first mission. And then second deployment ended up doing more
0: of the dropping bombs for the special forces team. Where was the first deployment to? Uh, Afghanistan. It's not like Afghanistan's a garden spot in in any part of it, but it's a little bit different, right? Sure. You're, you're not actually going on offense yourself. No. So that was uh, 2008, uh, 2009
1: you know, it got kind of, so this was right around the same time that Bo Bergdahl walked off a fob. And so all missions kind of turned, um, outward to find this guy. And then there had been a lot of casualties, um, with the SF teams. So what happened was they said, all right, you guys are going to switch gears and go play this mini Jaguar position. And Jaguar is, uh, it's the old school call sign of the combat controllers in Afghanistan. And so, um, man, they took us and they farmed us out to all these SF teams. And basically we just, became another dude on the team, uh, not necessarily the qualified JTAC, but it got very kinetic. So I actually had a couple where I was like, got a little bit of trouble for this, but there was a QRF and uh, I ended up being the, the QRF is quick reaction force. And so we were kind of on alert for this team bringing supplies to our fo- our Ford operating base and something went down. They got in a bad ambush and we ended up rolling out. Uh just as I was like coming back from this little medical thing, I saw the team sergeant. I was like, Hey, what do you want me to do? And he said, You're the Air Force guy. Go get your shit. Let's go. And so I said, Okay, Roger that. Went and got my kit. And we spent the next like 10 hours out just controlling it out. I was not a qualified JTAC, way out of my element, Donnie. Um, uh, but man, had a great time with it and uh, you know, got the mission done, recovered everybody, but got a little bit of trouble after we got back got the uh, got the rogue operator call sign and uh and man that was just you know part of the job right you fill in where you can on the team and uh and so then i got got back um after that deployment was done then went through all the additional training then hit my second deployment
0: all right that's a little fuller story easy into yeah, the yeah. easy into yeah. the how to maintain controlled aggression right you kind of yeah. knew what you were getting into a little bit more going into that second deployment.
1: For sure, yeah, so I got a little taste of it, you know, saw what death looked like,, uh, smelled it, felt it, felt it out a little bit. And then came back, uh, got my upgrade training to go be a JTAC. So so a lot of people ask like, hey, what's the difference between JTAC, TACP, CCT? Uh, TACPs and CCTs are both jobs in the Air Force. And then JTAC, the uh, the guys that drop bombs, that's just a skill. So like anybody can go to this course where you learn how to talk to all the aircraft and learn their capabilities and then deliver munitions
0: on target. So let's talk about the next deployment, a little more kinetic a little more different
1: all right so that's where ds right dan skidmore or direct support right so we get farmed out as a combat controller to attach to special forces teams Uh, i ended up in the eastern part of afghanistan in the mountains i ended up on a really good team Uh, guys were motivated to get out and do work and uh and so you know the mission was changing a little bit but it was by no means like an offensive direct action deal it was more of like Let's go out and see what's going on, build up the communities a little bit. And um, we ended up getting in some, some good stuff, um, some good firefights. And uh, I luckily had a really good team. So.
0: This is the part that was hard for me to relate to. I could from other stuff in my life, but, but less so in the military. Because you've got a special forces team, and they live, work, train, eat together year-round. I mean, that team is fixed. And then mm-hmm. you, you kind of get attached to that team. So what what is that dynamic like?
1: Well, it's always the uh, the tail sniffing, hey, who's in charge? What kind of guy is this? Uh, and so for me, it was always like, hey, I got to adapt to whatever situation this is and, and bring my A game, right? Because I, I want to bring value to this team. Whatever, whatever team I'm on, that's what it's all about. And you have to be able to keep up and dominate and show that you can run a gun with these dudes that are training with each other all year long or for years. And so it's always that little like, Showing that you're there to add value and and really like build their trust. That was always that was always key for us.
0: And so, what's the importance on the physical side?
1: Man, physical thing is is day one, right? I mean, there's always that like competition, right? Because guys on the team, there's always this man challenge of hey, all right, who's going to quit first, or who's the fastest, or who's the strongest, and you can immediately tell that you know within within our communities. Um, And so I did, you know, that was my thing is I was doing CrossFit at the time and you can get in and mix it up and sweat with the guys. Like that's a bonding experience. No matter if you're, no matter what it is, and if you can put out and you can show that you can carry the same load and and beat them at workouts, you get that little bit of respect. So uh, that's like day one, right? You got to show up ready.
0: Yeah. I mean, earning respect, emphasis is on earning it. Mm -hmm. Your reputation was preceded, I'm sure, by the community that you came from. I mean, CCTs have a really positive reputation, JTAGs and such that come from, from the Air Force. There is this notion of you are in really, really good shape. That's a cultural element. And I can only imagine that from a kind of survival instinct, rolling into a a new team of special forces guys over and over and over again throughout your career. I mean, physicality is the baseline. I mean, you show up and you got three chins and you talk about how good you are at dropping bombs. eh. Yeah. Nobody's going to buy that. Right? (laughs) Nope.
1: They're not. (laughs) And you spend, you spend way more time on deployment, like training or, you know, getting ready for the, for the next fight, than you do actually like actions on. And so those first impressions for us are huge
0: what was it like as it got more, you got further on in your career? Yeah, man. So, uh, you know, I came back from
1: that deployment, ended up going down to Haiti, running the two weeks of air traffic control down in Haiti, doing all the air traffic with an awesome team down there. We had, I think there was like 10 dudes. So a day shift and a night shift of guys. And then I came back and then I got a bunch of awards, right? I got like, you know, 12 outstanding airmen of the year for the air force, combat controller of the year. And I thought I was top hot shit. And, uh, and so Then I said, Hey, well, I'm going to go to the next level and basically put my package in to go support the, the tier one guys. And, uh, and we have an additional training pipeline for that, about a year's worth of training. And so, you know, I show up, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty young at this point, you know, I'm like 23 and, uh, get through this whole training pipeline thought I was kicking ass and got to the end of it. And my cadre, uh, the guy that was kind of like in charge of training, pulled me aside and sat me down and said, Hey man, you're just not quite there. You are going to go to this board. You need to get more experience. And, uh, and I, I was just crushed, right? My ego was down. And, uh, cause I'd just been kicking ass. I, you know, I thought my self-efficacy was very high. Well, then when I go to this board and they say, Hey, you're going to have to do this again. Right. And I was like, Oh my gosh, what the hell, Dan? So what do you do? Well, Hey, let's take some lessons learned here and, uh, and get some more reps. And so I showed up back again for, uh, for green team. And, you know, then through that training cycle, the the L word started getting thrown around, right. Leadership. And, uh, and, and that became, you know, that was kind of the first time that I was like, Hey, all right, well, I can take on this role of a leader on the team. You know, looking back, it was a crushing, crushing blow to me is like, an ego thing and then i came back and just chipped away at it
0: so rich you've seen this before right the young the young jedis emerge and think they're they're hot stuff you've lived that a little bit what's what's your take on why does it work like that
2: i go back to the time that that i knew initially the combat controllers and the and the sar guys in vietnam they were really good but they were really young for the most part and there's nothing wrong with youth but youth needs to be hammered on the anvil a little bit. And people see in the young, or you, if, if you've been around a while, you look at the young folks and you see them through a different perspective, not just the ass kickers, not the, the, the guys that can hammer every nail, but you're looking for the guy that can hammer the nail and then move on to the metaphysical if you will as opposed to the physical i think that's probably what the guys were seeing in you that they saw a lot of potential but they needed you to to gain that additional experience you've always got to be physical you've always got to be prepared physically but you also need to prepare mentally
1: that was 100 percent it too and i was doing dumb stuff as a young, arrogant dude and, uh, you know, drinking too much and going at when we were out and doing, making like, being a, not, not, not necessarily an asset to the team, but like too much of a liability. And I showed that a couple times and, uh, cause I thought I was hot shit. Right. And then they saw where I was at in my career and you're 100% right. I mean, where, where I was going, the dudes are mature, right. And they are going to walk on that if you're not in those positions. So it took ne- an extra year and it was really a gift, right of experience.
2: Well, I'm sure what they saw in you was positivity and the, the willingness to participate, but you needed that to be tempered with a thought process that you hadn't mm-hmm. quite arrived at yet. Yeah. And that's what you're looking for to, to reach that level of maturity and physicality that you can do the job completely. Because if you go in too early and you're not mentally prepared then you're going to get spit out and it's going to be far worse than having to go back through another year in prep.
1: No. And you're 100% right at that analysis. I mean, and it set me up for my next two uh, trips, next three trips um, because I needed that time. Right. I needed to learn those lessons and I needed to get kicked down from riding the high of like, you know, this is all going great to, well, (laughs) Dan
0: needs this.
2: We've all been there. Trust me. Yeah.
0: The, yeah. the funny thing is, is that the, the, the guys that are a little older, they remember what they were like at that age, right? Oh, yeah. Just yeah. because oh, you can yeah. stay up and, and see six straight dawns at the clubs, right? You know, getting your club on and stuff doesn't mean that that's the, the life that you should be leading when you have that time off or, or whatever. And the, the most succinct way that stuck with me as kind of a description of maturity in, in this field is it's really easy. To teach someone how to shoot someone, right? Here's your target. Here's how you pull the trigger and hit your target. It's really hard for someone to learn when not to pull the trigger, mm. and and that comes from from wisdom. Definitely, and, and wisdom is something that you have to earn over time, and part of it is just a natural maturity, which is why some of the guys are a little bit older. It's a young man's game. But some of the guys are a little bit older than than what people kind of assume. They assume everyone's twenty two years old, and it's just not the case. The, the leaders, just to throw around the leadership word, are not twenty two years old, right? So you're an emerging leader. Yep. So what does it look like? What's the next step look like? Progression in your career? Man, next step was just being a
1: tier one asset, right? Then all of a sudden. Hey, 2014, 2015 are rolling around and dudes are cutting each other's heads off, right? And putting it on YouTube. So that's, that's a no go. And so America decides to step in back into Iraq. And so there we
0: are, right? And uh, man, I got pushed back over there and uh, had a, a very entertaining time. So, what's your sort of moral compass in all of this? I mean, you know, like it, it's not always as simple as right and wrong every single day. There, there's got to be some. I mean there's civilians involved war is a really messy thing like wh- what's your northern star as you're you're going through significant combat operations wh- what are, what are your challenges in that in that realm if any
1: man uh so my go to is hey what's important now and then doing the next right thing um you know in combat people die unfortunately some people die that don't necessarily need to die um and it and it happens right but that's just the nature of the beast. Uh, But man, if you can honestly say, Hey, you did the best you could. And you had a, a, your distinction was true. And I can say, man, sitting back after we went through that whole ordeal, we took extensive steps. I mean, to the point where it was frustrating for a young dude, like, you know, Hey, you said it perfectly, not saying, not pulling the trigger, you know, even when I wanted to, and then let the situation develop a little bit and say, Hey, well, that was a good call that we didn't. And, uh, and so, man, as I look back at it and I look through that time, we made the right calls, right? 99.9% of the time. And, uh, and so always just... And I, and I sleep really well at night knowing that, right? Of, hey, we didn't destroy things or, or we said, hey, let's take it back in a notch. Let's just hold off on this. And, uh, and so having that tactical patience you know, keeps, keeps me true. And that was, a, that was a hard lesson to learn too at the time.
0: I mean, so what's your battle rhythm? I mean, I assume it's it's aggressive, right? Every night, oh, six yeah. nights a week? Yes. I mean, multiple targets, follow-ons. I mean, you're you're seeing stuff and, and listening to stuff constantly.
1: Okay. So, you know, in that war, you know, 2015, it's a lot more uh, sitting behind a computer desk, right? And so the time of boots on the ground of getting out and getting it on not necessarily as frequently. Yeah, we were, and hey, it was one of those like bullets whizzing past the head kind of kind of action, uh, but not as frequently as that um, as the early Iraq, right? Not necessarily kicking in a bunch of doors, although there was that. Um, if I found myself sitting behind a laptop, right, and having a bunch of screens and and operating from a, that environment, because sometimes, hey, just like we are now, you know, if you can sit behind a computer and manage things you can actually have more of, of an effect and so it, there was a good balance of that but it was every day I mean nonstop there's there no days off in this uh, but it wasn't necessarily like the the old battle rhythm of hey we're going to be on target every night but that target might just look a little different right because there's action every single day
0: yeah so you've been really active in, in kind of promoting the memory of those you knew who, who've fallen sacrifice We all live with that stuff. What's hit hardest or what's what's hit home the hardest throughout your service? You know, the guys you serve with that they're not they're not all with us anymore.
1: Um, probably my biggest hit on that, and I actually talked about it at my first Go Rec event. I had a buddy named Danny Sanchez and we were best friends going through school, going through training. And, uh, at one time, you know, we were very competitive with the work. And so it was like, Hey, I'm going to be the controller tonight, or you're going to be the controller tonight. And who's the guy getting the training. And at one point we had this little like fight, right. I think we do like shoving match and, uh, but we're like thick as thieves. Right. And so the relationship kind of went distant. And then we came back together right before the deployment, We, we hung out a little bit more. Um, but man, we were like, you know, didn't didn't end real well, and then he went to his fob, and I went to mine, and then he was killed uh, on a, a green on blue incident. Describe what
0: that is for for folks. Green so on blue.
1: Gr- green on blue means one. Of, it was friendly friendly fire. So one of the Afghans, uh, Afghan police, turned as they were conducting uh, some election operations, and they shot him. Right, he they were he was supposed to be on their team. They killed Danny and uh, one of the other guys, and that. And that relationship that I kind of like let go that I didn't have good closure on, or I wasn't tight with him um, because I was, and then I wasn't, but man, he was going his way. And I was going mine. As I look back at that, that's like a little bit of regret that I didn't stay good with that one dude. And, um, and, and he was out getting it like he was, but you know, and I haven't and like Mark at Forrester is another guy, you know, great relationship, but Hey, you know, guys, are guys are out doing it and uh, they're doing their job and living, living for, for the team and guys die, but keeping the relationship good with those guys, um, that's probably the most most impactful thing that I've had.
0: So how do you sort of process that? How do you process the, the loss?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, everybody's got something different, right? I think um, not forgetting and, and sharing their story, you know? Um, for me, for me, some of it was just like staying in contact with their parents. Uh, you know, so Danny's mom just sent me a bunch of pictures from us when we were like 19 the other day. And I was like, Whoa, you know, this is crazy. Um, uh, but you know, something as simple as like, you know, hero workouts that helps to some extent, but inside the go rock community, you know, Hey, we just did this. I did a 28 mile ruck yesterday. Right. And then amped it up a little bit. And hit cause Jaguar 28 was my friend, Mark Forrester's call sign. He was killed. He got a Silver Star uh, for trying to, he was saving his teammate, uh, SF guy named uh, Calvin Harrison. And uh, man, a heroic story, right? But not letting those guys die and, and forgetting about them. So we put it out as a challenge and the whole Gora community. I think there's like oh, probably pushing 100 dudes that hit 28 miles yesterday.
0: Hey, so DS, let's hear the story. Mark Forrester's story. Yeah, Jaguar 28. Let's hear it. Let's not, let's not forget it, man. Let's remember it. Yeah, man. So Jaguar 28, Mark Forrester. He's from
1: uh, Alabama. And uh, he was a devout Mormon man. Uh, went through college, decided that that wasn't the life for him, that he had a, a calling to go do something more. And, uh, and so he enlisted. He was about a year in training behind me, but we ended up doing all of our like upgrade JTAC training together. Had some wild times. Great, great fun. And then ended up in totally different fobs, uh, forward operating bases. And, and so he was way down south. And uh, they had been conducting missions and kind of held up in a vet, uh, in a village, did a little overnight stay. And in the morning, the enemy had rolled in and set up an ambush, a uh, sniper position. And they were rolling through. And to my knowledge, he got you know stuck in a, a sniper attack. And uh, one of the guys got shot, shot. And he ran out to Pulling back into safety, and he got hit as well. Um, bullet went through his plate, clipped his American flag that was wrapped around his bulletproof plates, and uh, but he continued talking to the F eighteen all the way through um, and calling danger close bombs, and uh, and so he received received a silver star for those actions, and uh, he died on the battlefield. And they, this is is the tenth year, man, and uh, and so they set up the Mark Forrester Foundation, basically a ruck yearly, and uh, I never got to do it, right? I never got to get down there. I was either doing something else, or you know, on a go ruck weekend, and uh, and then so we're all out here now, and I was like, hey, we're not going to forget this. We're going to go for it. And one of my friends who's in Germany, you know, there was a guy killed. uh, Well, he killed himself last week or two weeks ago. And he, my buddy said, man, I want to do something really hard. I want to do something like stupid. And I said, all right, well, I, I got something. Let's, let's, let's do something together. Um, but man, we're going to honor Jaguar 28 and hit 28 miles with 28 pounds. And every mile we're going to stop and do 28 pushups. And so I threw it out to the, the go community and they've, you know, how many dudes have said his name over the course of the last week. Right. And, and we'll continue to, that's to me, that's special
0: what's the hard part about remembering and honoring like are there any i mean man cuz i just i have these guys that you know i remember and most of the time it's i've allowed it to become positive right it's better to to remember than to forget
1: mm-hmm.
0: but man th- there's other moments where you just start you start hoping that something could have gone differently and, and those are like you just, you know, you, you can't go too far down that, that rabbit hole, but it, it's part of human nature, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and Hey, everybody like it, like for everybody to come home. But as we sat there at the, at the squadron and the commander said, Hey, you know, we're standing here right now. Odds are that not everybody's going to come back and you can't control who does or who doesn't, but you know, you can put out on the team and you can't like, you can never control who, who takes around and who doesn't. Um, uh, but to put to, not not forget those right but hey live for live for now and try to learn from those lessons and uh and celebrate the guys right that, that didn't come back but at the same time man like hey we can't we can't forget um but also not necessarily you know i, I got a thing like hey i'm not guys that kill themselves you know i, I treat that way differently but guys that are killed on the battlefield
0: uh man. so we all know too many people that have killed themselves too right like that it's another big problem for sure you want my honest opinion here? Yeah, I want your honest
1: opinion. All right, so if a guy at selection quits, you just never see him again, right? Uh, something happens and he goes away. Same thing at a go event, right? He goes away. He just jerks into the night. And man, for guys that kill themselves, you know, this is not necessarily an opinion, a, a popular opinion. Uh, but man, like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna write a Facebook post and say, oh man, you were a great dude. You quit the team, man. Like, and there's resources out there no matter how bad it gets, that you can stay in the fight. And so you can always learn from somebody's lesson. Um, but me personally, man, I, I can't celebrate guys that quit, right? Um, I'm not, I'm not going to quit anything. And, and so as a, as a mentality, if I say, hey, Jason, dude, if you kill yourself, I don't care what's going on. You had an opportunity to reach out to me. I'm not going to say, oh, man, phew,
0: we're not going to celebrate that, right? It, it doesn't have to wipe away... An entire lifetime. I, I think that definitely not. I mean, to me, it sounds like you're you're angry at people that don't call you. Like th- this, is, it, it sounds almost like y- you had the opportunity, and I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily angry,
1: right? It's just like a, it's like a, you know, hey, you want that, right? You want somebody to pick up the phone, or or just like reach out, right? You're never so deep where you can't call yourself out, right? Or with a little bit of help. And so, but encouraging that, man, if, if some, if one of my friends can say, oh man, like I'll do, I'm just going to call Dan, right. I'm not going to take that option. Um, and it's actually a very common thing. I, I reached out to a uh, a psychologist about this, about this idea, right. Just culturally is if we stop just like as active shooters, right. On the news, the news doesn't say their name. They don't celebrate these guys. Although yes, they were heroes before something happened and, and we went a different direction. So you don't have to totally forget that that person existed but as like a, a stigma thing if i can just change the change the narrative um i and it, it's not necessarily heartless right it's observed we see it we know that it's here um, but it doesn't have to be that way and so and if i if i look at it like that i'm at peace with it um, and it's not necessarily an a popular thing I don't expect anybody else to think about it but if we can just I hey, have the conversation of the best way to deal with this because it's an epidemic, right? Guys think that it's okay. Um, but I'm telling, I'm here to say that it's not okay with me and, uh, maybe it'll help somebody maybe it won't.
2: I, I think what, uh, what I would say to that is that we, we recognize those who are gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've got two ways to recognize them. Uh, those that take their own lives have chosen to leave the team. It's what it boils down to. And for the things that they did on the team that were good, we remember that, but we don't celebrate it. Right. For those whose lives are taken on the battlefield in the conduct of our operations, we live a better life because of the sacrifice they made. And we honor their sacrifice by living that life and by bringing as much spirit to the life as we possibly can. So I want to nuance this just a little
0: bit and then... We'll probably get on to some other light, <laughs> little bit lighter stuff. Yeah, it was deep. When, when, <laughs> when we start to see way too many people doing this, to me, it's a sign that there, there's a greater influence at play, right? And when you start to say, hey, there used to be decompression for guys coming back from war. There used to be this idea that the social fabric supported the warfighter in a way that was conducive to a positive transition. And now what we're seeing is there's just a really broad disconnect from what the reality is when you're fighting the wars and then you come home and it's just so different. I don't think that we as a military, if I'm gonna take this inside the family, I think we're making enormous strides that are positive, but I don't think we've fully come to grips with how we can best support guys that are struggling. And it's it's always a two-way street, but I know that if if you're going to look at this from kind of a commander's perspective, you want to say this is just mathematically not working out, right? Mm-hmm. Regardless of the individuals, there's just too much of this. So how do we address this systemically? And for for us, for for the three of us and for those that are that are inside the community, I mean man, what we can do is, I I agree, talk about it. But the reason why I've been more or less to varying degrees comfortable sharing my story is because I want to share the struggles too. Because I never had a gun to my head or anything. That was not in my vocabulary. But at the same time, I had kind of so much going for me. And man, the, the carpet got pulled out from underneath me fast. And when you take away support, you take away the mission, you take away these things and your expectations were not that that was gonna happen so fast. You didn't know what, you were, what was on the other side. And it's a, it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. But too many guys are, are, are deciding that path. And so I, I think we gotta fight it from the ground up as a community to say, look, the struggle is real. And at the top down, there are other things that we as a society and, and a military brotherhood, sisterhood, Community can also address that that's supportive. And I think the
1: support structure now is stronger than it ever has been, right? And the, and I, I love what you said about finding a mission, right? Or a task. And because if you got out, out in the military and all of a sudden that's ripped away from you or you get injured and then you can't get back to the job that you love so much, well, hey, we got to find another mission for you. And uh, I mean, that's a perfect segue into... You know, Force Blue and the nonprofit work that I've done, and like the ocean conservation, and, and that's kind of their like their bread and butter is hey, giving these guys a, a belonging and a betterment and another mission, right? And your mission has been go ruck. Mine. I've been a part of that, and so giving that as an asset. But man, we have the assets right now. Now is a better time than ever, and so let's let's change the narrative on it, right? Go get wet. Go t- go work out, right? go instead of opening up a bottle, go jump in the water, right? Take a shower, go for a swim. You're going to feel better when you get done with it.
0: So DS, I think that there are more resources than ever, but I'm not sure it's better in, in a holistic way than when guys would ride on the boats back together from World War II and have that community. And then you come back and other guys on your street, on your block have all served and that's just in Middletown America. I think that the community fabric has changed a little bit. And the resources, because of the generosity and, and the will of the American people to support our veterans is really strong. And I'm just so grateful. I've, I've chatted so many times with Rich about the Vietnam era stuff, and I just cannot believe how the American people treated our, our soldiers. And they don't anymore. Mm-hmm. Yet. The fabric of our society is not as conducive to these holistic types of feelings, like you're a part of something bigger than yourself still. Now, when you strip that away, you're dealing with individuals with social media accounts and everything is a lot more private. And I think what we're getting at is the fight club element of what we do is fight club doesn't happen in a video game, people. It happens in whatever parking garage you can find, you know? Right. And then you have yeah. some negotiations for how you're going to keep that parking garage, right? <laughs> you know, or it's in a field or it's it's diving with Force Blue, which, which re-engages that community, that that element of doing something awesome with other people together in the real world. And, and that's that's been the magic of GORUCK. That's why the community... Is strong because it does translate into the real world with these real world connections. And I feel very much like we're we're on the same team together, fighting that good fight for people to get out there. And I think you're doing a, an excellent job of leading from from the front to get people into that way of life.
1: Yeah. Well, that's all you can do, right? Is go to your next door neighbor and encourage them to get out and get after it. Dudes that are, you know operator t- SF, S- man, you're a commu- if you're a community builder prove it go next door and and if you feel lonely right cuz that's that's kind of the that's been the number one thing that guys feel lonely right something was stripped away from them their wife left their kids followed suit then they have no brothers go make a community find somebody to influence and be that change and and man like that's that's what i want right i'm sitting in my buddy's house right now because i've built my community here and, uh, and, and so everything will revolve around that. And, you know, if you're alone, choose something different, right?
2: Find, find your purpose. That's right, man. Find your purpose and create your team. Absolutely. It's a, a natural extension of the human condition that we want to be part of a team. Absolutely. I, I'm not an anthropologist or anything like that. But if you go back to hunter-gatherers, people gathered in groups they gathered in teams. It's always been thus. Everybody is looking for their own team and the teams change from time to time. As you go through your life, you you have teams you form in grade school. We call them friends, but they're a team. It's a group of people that enjoy the same thing that are working together towards a central purpose. Then it changes when perhaps you go to college. Well, you didn't go to college. I didn't go to college at that point in time. And so I was looking for a team. You were looking for a team. You found yours. I found mine. And it's when you leave the military, when you separate from the military in particular, or when you separate from any team, a corporate team, whatever it might be, when Mm -hmm. you leave that, you've lost your sense of purpose. And so you need to find your purpose and reestablish a team. And you can set up your own. You don't have to look for another team. You can create a team. Well, that's
1: just like the gym environment, right? Of people sure. that are working out in their garage right now. Hey,
0: let's kind of transition into this fitness realm. Yes, we should transition into training. There's so much good stuff there. Here's the problem. I'll break it down real simple. Right. If we really go deep into that, we're going to have ourselves a- another hour. So let's just give this a hard break and let's leave this episode as is, right? Okay. Service, Air Force you not wanting to join the army or the Marine Corps or the Navy for, for whatever reason, those, those are your reasons, right? <laughs> we talked a little bit about them. The audience can decide what they think about that. Think about your service. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So no, it, all, all, joking aside, let's take this personal story and just call it a wrap. Been awesome chatting with you on this. We're going to give this a hard break and now we're going to focus on training. Does that sound good? Yes. All right. So that's the end of part one with DS talking about his service. The The thing that came to mind for me is he's like a young rattlesnake in there out of the gates when he starts talking about not ready for this and, you know, but just hard charging. What, what'd you think, Rich?
2: Oh yeah. I mean, he was, it, it was interesting to hear him talk through the early stages of his life about how he got to where he is today and, and how he got to where he was in the military in particular when when he served as a as a combat controller he was full of piss and vinegar and he was ready to to go do things and people saw in him a far better person than he even knew he was and so they wanted to develop that and it was interesting to listen to him go through his development phases
0: yeah i mean you've been on those boards you've spoken about some of the younger bucks in organizations you've been in and and where they just need more time. And how does that go most of the time? Does it break them? Does it make them stronger? Is it what happens?
2: For the most part, uh, when they reach that stage and come to those kinds of boards, they're pretty well mentally developed and understand what needs to occur. They just it just hasn't occurred in their life yet. And so, Most of them take it well. They don't like it. Hell no, they don't like it. I didn't like it. Been there, done that. But they understood it. They understood that there was a piece of them that needed further development, that they needed to get some additional experience. And most of them took it in a good way. Now, like I said, they didn't like it, but it continued to create that awareness and that self-discipline that people at that level need to have. So what's the
0: normal trajectory for someone in their career in special operations? Insofar as normal is even the right word. You start out as this and, and then you evolve into what?
2: Well, I look back at my early, early days and the whole idea behind special operations or special forces at that time because that's what I knew of, was you needed to be able to fight an unconventional war to first be able to fight a conventional war. You needed to understand those tactics, techniques, and requirements that fell on a conventional force so that you could take those and teach them in an unconventional environment to indigenous forces. Early on, Uh, there was a requirement for soldiers that applied for special forces to have had conventional time somewhere. And then they moved into special forces and they got their team time. They started working on special forces teams once they had been through assessment selection and, and training. Some of that was shortcuts because of the Vietnam War and the requirements that that were on the table for special operations and conventional forces during the Vietnam War. A lot of people went to war that weren't truly prepared to go to war. Uh, they, They probably should have had some additional training, but they were qualified nonetheless. And so you went through those stages of conventional versus team time and then beyond that. So you just
0: keep mastering the fundamentals across a broad array of situations. Because it's one thing to know how to shoot how to hit a target. It's another thing to know how to do it when you're in the mountains on day whatever, or it's, you know, you're you're in an urban environment, you're in a close quarters battle situation. I mean, so just to kind of break it down, I mean, calling in bombs in an urban environment is not the same thing as calling in bombs in a mountainous environment. You know, you have different kinds of aircraft and how you talk to them, you get more confident. You understand others' limitations. You understand your own limitations more. You the only way you find that out in your development is by continually applying those fundamentals across different types of situations which over time it just broadens your your brain to the point where you realize that you're just a lot more adaptable which is by definition what special operations
2: is the key is as a special operations soldier airman whoever you know the how what you need to learn is the when. You know, you know how to do it. You know how to pull the trigger. You know how to call in the airstrike. The key is know when to do it.
0: So there's this, this idea of the assumption of greater risk if you don't squeeze the trigger, right? You have to wait. If you, if you assess a threat and you say, I'm going to drop that bomb, I'm going to squeeze that trigger, then you've neutralized that risk. What you've also done, though, is... You don't get any take backs.
2: When you've also instituted a a brand new array of risk, that's what you don't know. And that's why, as you go through all of your training, as you go through the mentorship that occurs on teams from the older guys, as you learn from the guys that have been there, the guys that have been in that position and have done successful operations, you learn from them that while it may appear to be an additional risk, to not pull that trigger you eliminate that risk but you may create others so you look at need to look at the second and third effects of what your actions are going to require
0: right so that's that's really what we're getting at with with the mindset because it took a long time from from me to understand what that was in my kind of journey and then and then kind of even processing it years after just seeing the examples of the guys that were around me and the ones that I respected the most were the most calm when it was times of of utter chaos and they they just had a better sense of of what true risk was and that's that goes back to the the real value and importance of the team is that you kind of feed off each other you feed off your leaders and as as you develop into one it's your job to project that calm when something is is a real risk versus when it's just something that, you know, this too shall pass and there's another sunrise in the morning. Exactly. All right, that's the end of part one with DS. Part two is going to focus all on training and mindset and what's going on with some of the, the sandbag and ruck training that we're getting into in the GoRuck community. So that, that'll be part two. Thank you so much for listening to The Glorious Professionals. <laughs>